Hey, it's Justin, and I have a big announcement and personal invitation for you. This May, we're inviting a small group of people to Austin to learn how to grow their wealth tax-free and get access to some of my personal friends and experts in the industry. We did something similar last year, and the feedback was incredible, so we set aside a few tickets for non-Mastermind members to join us for this event. You'll spend some time learning from Garrett Gunderson, the brilliant and hilarious mind behind Money Unmasked, and the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Killing Sacred Cows, and one of my favorite books, What Would the Rockefellers Do? He's going to share his insights on how to grow your assets tax-free with life insurance. And you'll also get some time with Rob Dial, the mastermind behind the Mindset Mentor Podcast, who will share with you how to find fulfillment in success. Then you'll get to participate in a special investment presentation, in-depth discussions, and breakout sessions on two crucial yet often overlooked topics, personalized tax strategies and wealth building. Plus, when you register, you'll have the opportunity to attend a one-day course the day before on vetting deals. If you want to learn our process so that you can make great decisions, there's no better teacher than Hans Box. This is our most requested topic, and it'll be an exceptional course. Seats for the course and the one-day event are limited, so if you're interested, please grab your ticket today. I always say you're just one connection, one decision, and one strategy away from true freedom, and I look forward to helping you on your journey. Head over to lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash live or click the link around this video and secure your ticket now before we sell out. Hope to see you in Austin this May. Once again, that's lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash live. I can't wait to see you there. Now, let's get into today's episode. Welcome to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Imagine being able to earn passive income, build long-term wealth, while gaining total freedom from your business or job. That's what lifestyle investing is all about. I'm your host, Justin Donald, and in less than two years, my investments drove enough passive income for both my wife and me to quit our jobs. And now, I want to show you how to do the same. I want to teach you how to create wealth without creating a job. You'll learn the exact same investment strategies I use to multiply my net worth to over eight figures all before the age of 40. If you want to learn all about low-risk cash flow investing, achieve financial freedom, and live the life you truly desire, this podcast is going to show you exactly how to do it. Michael Hyatt is the visionary founder and chairman of Full Focus, a performance coaching company that has helped over 970 business owners excel in business and life. Throughout his remarkable career, Michael has scaled multiple companies, including a $250 million publishing powerhouse with over 700 employees. Under his leadership, Full Focus has grown 60% annually for the past four years and has been featured in the Inc. 5000 list of fastest growing companies in America for three years in a row. His new book, Mind Your Mindset, draws upon the latest insights in performance, psychology, neuroscience, and cognitive science and will help you combat limiting beliefs and retrain your thinking so you can achieve your bigger goals. In this episode, you'll learn how Michael successfully scaled a $250 million a year business that sold for half a billion dollars strategies and principles for building companies that attract world-class talent 
and how to rewire the negative stories your brain is telling you and replace them with ones that empower you. One more thing before we get to today's interview. Michael has something special for Lifestyle Investor Podcast listeners. For those interested in purchasing his new book, Mind Your Mindset, he's also giving away a bunch of bonus material, including the audiobook version of the book, a 50% discount on the self-coacher desk tool that will help you work through your thinking, and lastly, the Mind Your Mindset reading guide, which will allow you to go deep and apply the principles from the book. To get access to this gift, visit lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash 134. Thanks for listening, and without further delay, my conversation with Michael Hyatt. What's up, Michael? Glad to have you on the call and uh, on the podcast. I'm so excited to connect. Justin, I'm super excited about this. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, so this has been something that we've talked about for a little while, and I think it's going to be cool to really tell your story and kind of all the cool things that I've been able to work with you on. And the more I get to know you, the more impressed I am with you. So this is going to be fun. Yeah. For those of you that don't know, Michael and I met through mutual friends. And I think many people in my community know Brad Johnson. I did an earlier podcast with him. He's one of my first podcasts, actually. He's one of the people, Brad, I think is the guy that officially pushed me over the edge and convinced me that I really need to do a podcast and get my message out to the world on financial freedom and lifestyle investing. So kudos to Brad. I love Brad. I'm a huge Brad fan. And he's been in a mastermind that I had. And now he's a coaching client. And just as an amazing human, he's done extraordinary work. And his partner, Sean Sparks, who I know you also know well, I mean, the, the three of us, really had some fun during the pandemic. We were trying to find fun any way that we could. And so we started hosting, we're all into wine. And so we started hosting these virtual happy hours and it was just Brad and I, and then it was Brad, Sean and I, and then it was us for a while and we brainstorm and we talk business and we just, it was just a blast. And then all of a sudden uh, we started doing deals. We started bringing more people in. And this thing blew up. And that was really the the beginning of the Lifestyle Investor brand and community. So I owe a lot to those guys for just the fun collaboration, just ideas and content. The, the things that we would talk about were a blast. And it was something that we all looked forward to doing, you know, once or twice a week. So your name came up many times during those conversations. And I'm just glad that we finally got a chance to meet. Me too. Yeah, he spoke so highly of you. And, you know, whatever Brad says, I just go, okay, his word is gold. Totally. Same here. If Brad recommends it, I'm in. If Sean recommends it, I'm in. And as I understand, you have worked closely with those guys. You sit on a board and, and you're an advisor to the business that they have created, which has taken off, right? Like this was, I mean, this is like a ground up build that is like a rocket ship. I'm just so proud of those two. Well, I am too. And when they first told me how ambitious they were and what they wanted to accomplish, you know, I've seen a lot, you know, I've been around a few decades and I thought, well, you know, we'll see. Everybody talks a good game, but let's see what you can do. And so I got into an advisory relationship with them, and I coach them. I meet with them every two weeks, roughly. And uh, usually it's both of them together, sometimes one of them. But uh, to watch the progress over the last two years has been extraordinary. I can't divulge the numbers, but it was way beyond my imagination. Yeah. I, so they told me, so I remember hanging out with them and 
And we had just a meeting of the minds, uh, so to say. We, we just spent this weekend. We brought our spouses and we spent this weekend at Blackberry Farm. And I know you love Blackberry. I know you host events, right? It's, I mean, it's literally one of the coolest properties and experiences just that exists on the planet. I mean, this place is gorgeous. The food is delicious. The scenery is breathtaking. And so I know you host like, you know, some of your corporate events there and some of your staff, you know, meetings. And, and so we went there because Brad said, oh yeah, Michael uses this place. We should do it. And so we just had the best time, you know, you know, hiking in the Smoky Mountains and just enjoying unbelievable food, unbelievable wine. And that's when the conversation started about this business that they were going to build and where I first learned about you. Well, just a final word on BlackBerry. You know, it will forever ruin you because for us, every meal we have, every resort we go to, we always measure it against BlackBerry. And we have yet to find it. There probably is someplace better than BlackBerry on the planet, but we have yet to find it. You know, everything's, you know, it can get close, but not exceed it. But I'm glad you're in their lives and I'm glad you were in those formative stages when they were putting together their idea. Well, and, and it was funny because they were talking these big numbers. And, you know, when you're talking about billions of dollars of volume, you know, assets under management and, and everything, you, you don't have to make a big percent to have a huge profit, right? So these guys make just a small sliver and like any, you know, a lot of RIAs in general and any of these groups, whether you're working in the annuity space or, or whether, you know, you're in the wealth management space, you know, as, as a whole, maybe like many different options under your roof, like it's just a small percentage when you have a lot of assets under management. And we've started looking at many different investments. One of my friends has a fund that buys up RIAs and is rolling them up for a bigger acquisition, which I think is brilliant because there's cash flow right now, but then there's also the upside growth. And so these guys were talking just monster numbers. And I remember thinking, okay, over how long of a time is it going to take to get there? And they have done it so fast. It is so incredible. Well, the one part I can, can say is they've gone from zero to about 55 employees since they started two years ago. And they're still probably a little bit short-staffed. I mean, they've they're really investing for the growth because the thing that they do that's so good as a business model is they said, let's take the top end of the market. So they're what's called a field or a FMO, a field marketing office for all these big annuity companies and insurance companies and so forth. And so they serve like the top 1% of wealth advisors in the world. And uh, I think there's a lesson for all of us to learn about super serving the clients that have got the means to pay for it. Because I've served those lower parts of the market and even the bottom of the market, and there's money to be made there too. But honestly, it's not as fun for me. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, like you and like Brad and Sean, I do like to appeal to like the higher tier or the higher echelon, uh, which I think is great. Remind me the name of their company again. I'm drawing a blank. Is it uh, Triad Partners? Triad, that's right. So, you know, check them out. If any of you are in that space, they are revolutionizing the FMO space. Their value add is unique and different than anyone else in the space. So big shout out to them and to those guys for connecting us. And for my audience who doesn't know, every year, I think it's really important in, in various areas in my life, I think it's important that I hire a coach. I always talk about how important your peer group is and how important your mentors are 
and that you're intentional about where you spend your time and who you spend your time learning from. And so every year or most every year, I have a coach that coaches me in some area. And often I'll have a fitness coach and I'll have a business coach. And so, you know, over the last number of years, I've engaged in many different coaching relationships with who I think are best in class in areas of of their specialization and areas that I feel like I need to grow in. And so this year uh, is my first year coaching with you, and I'm thrilled about it. We've had so much fun. I've learned a ton. You've got uh, a wealth of knowledge because you uh, have expertise on the private business side. You have expertise on the public business side. And so we're going to talk about some of that today. But uh, it's, it's fun being able to hear from afar how impressive someone is, see a little bit of what that's like because you know, you're know you advising companies that my friends own and then getting a chance to work with you one-on-one. And I want to share some of the magic that you've helped us create in Lifestyle Investor and just for me and my own life on our show today. So thanks. Fantastic. Well, thank you. Again, thanks for having me on. Yeah. So how did it begin for you? Like, Let's talk about the the evolution of you becoming an entrepreneur, you becoming like maybe a corporate, like, because at first, I think it was more on the corporate side, right? And then you transitioned to your own thing, your own business. And I'd love to hear the evolution of what your professional life looked like and how you embarked on running your own business. Well, when I was a senior in college at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, I started working at a small book publishing company in Waco. And I love, love, love books. And I thought, wow, if I could be a part of disseminating ideas through books, that would be like the ultimate. I majored in philosophy. Frankly, I thought I was going to go into the ministry. But uh, when I got into book publishing, I thought, this is it. So I went immediately from college to work for that company full-time, first in sales, then as the marketing director. And then I moved to Nashville, Tennessee, where I live now, where I became the vice president of marketing for Thomas Nelson Publishers, which was at the time the seventh largest book publisher in the U.S. and publicly held, traded on the New York Stock Exchange. So I did that for two years, and then I decided I was smarter than the people I was working for and kind of full of myself. And so I said, I'm going to start my own publishing company. So along with a partner, we started a publishing company. We went out and raised the capital for it. We had a small group of private investors, and we took off like a, like a bottle rocket. But after about five years, we had grown the business to about $5 million, which back in the day, this was back in the 80s, that was a significant amount. And we had grown it to about $5 million, and we only had three salespeople. So we thought if we got into a distribution relationship with a bigger publisher, that could take us to the next level. So we got into a relationship with a publishing company that had 12 salespeople, so four times what we had. So we're thinking, simple math, four times our volume, you know, surely, like, even if it only doubled it, that would be amazing. Well, it wasn't so amazing because we were doing about $400,000 a month in cash flow. And the first month, they delivered $40,000. And so they did, they did like 10% of what we did, which was, frankly, catastrophic. So we got on the phone with the CEO and we said, what the heck? You know, and he said, look, I know, but our guys are just getting up to speed on your stuff. Give another 30 days, everything will be fine. In the meantime, we'll loan you the difference. We have to secure that, but we want to loan the difference to you so that you can meet payroll, pay the printers, do all the things. So we said, okay, we didn't like it, but we said, okay. So the next month they got up 
to uh, about double that. They got to about 80,000, and that was the most they ever did. So it was a fraction of what we were selling. So a few months later, a few months into this, we had racked up about a million two in debt with them and their parent company. They were owned by ABC, the ABC in New York. And we got a call from their CFO and said, hey, we're trying to clean up the balance sheet because we want to sell this company. And so you need to pay back this $1.2 million and we're giving you 30 days to do it. Well, there was nowhere we could come up with the cash. Long story short, they shut us down. They took all of our assets. We were so broke, Justin, that there was nothing to liquidate. You know, we couldn't even go bankrupt. So we just closed up shop. So then my partner and I, we had a great relationship and still do to this day. We started a literary agency representing some of the biggest authors in the, in the country, and that did really well. But I, I really wanted to get back into the corporate world. So after about six years of that, I sold my half of the business to him. I went back to Thomas Nelson, where I eventually became the chairman and the CEO of the company. So at the time I was running it, 2011 was the last year that I was running it before we sold it to HarperCollins. We did like $250 million a year, $40 million, $42 million worth of EBITDA. We had 750 employees. We sold the company for a half a billion. And I led that sale and got quite the education in the process. Have bought and sold a few companies since then. But yeah, that's kind of the, the backstory. Then I started Full Focus, the company that I own today here in Nashville, actually Franklin, Tennessee. And uh, we've got about 35 employees. We published the Full Focus Planner. And we have a significant part of our business is business coaching. So that's kind of the, the business side of it. I can give you the personal too, if you're interested. Yeah, I certainly am. And, and this is fun hearing about kind of where you are today, because I'm flying out to see you. We're going to spend some time together tomorrow. And I am thrilled about that. I'm excited to see your corporate headquarters and, uh, you know, kind of see where, where all the magic happens, because you guys create some amazing content and some amazing publications there. You're the author of many books, double digits of books, I think, right? Yeah, I've written uh, 15 books now. Wow. About six of those are self-published. We did them primary, primarily for our clients, but the others, I've had two New York Times bestsellers. I've had every other book has hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. My most recent book, Mind Your Mindset, which I co-wrote with my daughter, Megan, who's now the CEO of our company, that hit number two on the Wall Street Journal list back in January. We couldn't beat James Clear. He was holding the number one spot with Atomic Habits, but we felt still pretty good about getting number number two. So yeah, I've written a lot of books. I'm kind of on pace now and under contract to do about a book every 18 months or so, but I love writing, publishing, speaking, coaching, all those things. Oh, that's incredible. By the way, the story with Atomic Habits and James Clear is pretty interesting because from what I understand is that they did well right out of the gates and then the book kind of trailed off. And not that it's like, not that it didn't do a lot of sales, but I just think that there was a big drop off. And then I think that not a lot happened for, you know, even the course of a year or so. And then it just exploded again. I didn't know that. So my understanding from people that are more in the know is that there was this reemergence of his book and then it just like caught, you know, fire and really took off. So really a fascinating story. Uh, for those that are in the the publishing space, for those that are, you know, authors that even though your book may trail off, there could be a time in the future where, you know, it kind of comes back around. Yeah, all it takes is really one big publicity event or something that happens in the news that suddenly makes the, the topic relevant again. But I don't know what that was, but I can tell you when the first week of sales for our book, he was selling 30,000 books a week. Wow. And which is 
astonishing. That's unheard of. Very few authors. I mean, well, the the reality is very few authors ever even sell 30,000 books, period. That's right. To do that the first week is just astronomical. And to do that consistently for weeks is astronomical. Well, I can tell you from my time in the book publishing industry, probably 95% of all authors don't sell 5,000 copies. So it's, it's a crazy business because what publishers do is take a lot of bets on a lot of products. It's like a portfolio. And they just have to have a certain number of them hit and do big to cover their losses on the other ones. Gotcha. That's the game. Do you love the podcast and the book and wonder what the next step should be on your lifestyle investor journey? For a limited time, my team is doing free personalized consultation calls to learn more about your goals and determine which of our courses or masterminds will help you get to the next level. Whether that's to make your first investment or to create your first income stream of passive income, or whether that's to achieve ultimate financial freedom. If you'd like to reserve a spot, head over to lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash consultation to book a free strategy session while they're still available. Again, that's lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash consultation. So I'm curious what some of the lessons you learned from being at a publicly traded company, having a big exit, being part of, uh, I would assume, the equity team in this exit. What are some walkaway lessons that you had from that experience that have helped you with full focus? Well, I think one of the things and one of the reasons why I believe in coaching so much is I think surrounding yourself with people that are smarter than you are, that have different skills and different experience is critically important. That kind of diversity for the talent pool is critically important. I think you've got to hire a rock star executive team. You can't do it all. And I think if you really want to scale and if you really want to grow, you've got to be willing as an entrepreneur to invest in the kind of human capital that it will take to get you there. But especially if you intend to go out and raise money or even if, if the executive team is going to stay on and operate the business, what investors are looking for is a team they can invest in. Yeah, they're going to review the balance sheet. They're going to look at the cash flows. They're going to look at the EBITDA. They're going to look at the growth rate. They're going to look at all those kinds of metrics. But at the end of the day, a big part of it is subjective, and it's their assessment of the capability of the executive team you know, to really move the ball forward. They, they believe they're going to add value to it, obviously, but they really want a team that they can invest in and feel confident in. So it's worth making that investment. Plus, experienced people will help you avoid the mistakes that are so easy to make. Now, in that transaction, that was the, the first time I had really used big league, you know, investment bankers and brokers and all that kind of stuff. And so there was definitely a learning curve. Part of the learning curve was that I didn't realize how much they were going to leverage the purchase. So the thing that was fascinating, because I was on the operating side of the sale, but so th- they bought it for a half a billion dollars. It was the most, we had a 13 and a half times EBITDA multiple. That's incredible. And so it was, it was the most anybody had ever paid for a publishing company ever. And so, which I felt great about it until I realized, and I don't know, this is just my inexperience at the time. What I didn't realize is that the private equity was putting in 50 million and they were expecting me to go out as the show pony to raise 450 million, which I did. And in fact, we were oversubscribed 
on the debt side by about 2x. So we had phenomenal margins, best margins in, in our industry. We had had steady increase in our stock price for seven years. And, and so we had a phenomenal story. The company had been in business since 1798. Now, I wasn't there that long, but it was uh, an old company with a venerable heritage and a lot of bestsellers. And I was getting bankers that were emailing me and saying, hey, how about if we go, you know, golf down in Jacksonville for the weekend? And how about if I take, you know, $10 million worth of that debt? You know, so, I mean, it was just, I was really being courted and it felt good. All that was awesome until we hit the Great Recession. So we closed on the deal in 2005, and then we hit the Great Recession in 2008, and we were really over, over leveraged for that. I think the takeaway was that you really got to, if you do a deal like that, and I'm not sure I would do that kind of deal again, but if you do a deal like that, you got to really pay attention to the covenants because our cash flow was positive all through the Great Recession. We didn't lose money a single quarter, but our covenants got upside down because the ratios were screwed up. And unfortunately, when you've got private equity involved and when you've got institutional debt involved, if you get upside down on your covenants, then you have people, a lot of people to trying to tell you what to do. And I really, really value my freedom. And so I didn't enjoy that very much. That was a really rough ride. But I will say that I probably learned some of the most important lessons I ever learned taking a company that size through the Great Recession. Yeah, that, that is a, a great kind of depiction of all that went into it or a lot of what went into it. But you bring up a really good point, Michael, and that is with covenants. And I think that this is something most people don't think about when you're raising money, when you're trying to scale, and this can be inside of debt, this can be inside of equity. The terms that you agree to are everything. And you need to know those terms because you could be running an amazing business, but you could also be set up to fail based on the way some of the covenants read where the business is profitable. You've got positive EBITDA, like all is, is well, except, oh, this covenant didn't work because you didn't provide financials in a timely fashion, or you held you know, too much of this type of debt or w- whatever the covenant is. And that one covenant can sink you. That one covenant can hold you in default on, you know, a note or on an agreement where you could lose part of the company or you can lose in this case in your case some of your rights and and, and thus the freedom. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, you know, we we've often heard the term deal heat. You know, deal heat can be a good thing when you're a seller because, you know, all the people that are competing to buy the company, there's a deal heat that raises the temperature in the room. And everybody kind of gets irrational and they start overpaying for stuff. And a lot of people, frankly, thought that the investors had over the private equity company overpaid for us at half a billion dollars. But I'll tell you, the, the thing I learned is that deal heat affects you if you're leading that sale, too, because you tend to get kind of swept up in the whole thing. And if you're not careful, you end up minimizing the risk factors and magnifying or being too optimistic on the growth potential. And then you enter into a deal that, yeah, we could deliver these numbers if all the stars align, but if they don't, we could be in trouble. And so you talk yourself out of that. And so when you're building your executive team, and I like to have this in the CFO, I want somebody that is looking at it with not really pessimism, but with a healthy dose of realism that can identify the risk factors and say, if this goes wrong, or this goes wrong, or this goes wrong, what are we going to do? 
And you got to be able to survive that worst case scenario and come out whole on the other end. And so a lot of people don't like to do this, but I think you've got to project. I, I like to do forecasts on a three-tier system. So like, what's the best case? What's the most likely case, sort of a middle of the road thing? And then what's the worst case? And I really want all of those to work before I'm going to get into the deal. Yeah. And this, you know, brings us to, you know, another point. And, and by the way, in a previous episode, I had Rob Follows on and and he's, you know, done over a thousand M&A transactions. And his big thing is you sell your company to a strategic. You don't just sell it to VC or private equity. You don't just sell it to, you don't, you don't necessarily just go public. Like all those are options. But if you sell to a strategic, you are truly maximizing the value because you will likely get more than the company's worth because they don't need it for the value that they're paying for it. They don't need it for the profit or income. They need it often as just like an add-on. And whether it's profitable or not, it creates so much value for their customer base or for their internal team or whatever it is. But you know, another interesting thing with, with selling a company or, or going public and I guess there's several different paths that we could go down. Most people, like as there's an exit, and let's go down the path of just a strategic private equity VC, someone buying your company, a lot of people get thrown into what's called an earnout, and that earnout keeps them locked up for a period of time with certain performance metrics that they have to hit in order to earn the rest of the compensation for the sale. Yours is a little different because you guys went public, right? Well. No, the company was already public by the time I became the CEO and it had been public since 1965 or something like that. So we went the other direction. So then you you privatized. Right. And I can tell you, you know, the public markets, frankly, I loved running a public company. You know, and even though we had sort of the burden of Sarbanes-Oxley and all the compliance stuff and, you know, there was, and we had to have quarterly calls with our, with the analysts and with the investors but I love the FaceTime with investors. I love telling our story. I love performing, you know, in a way that made them happy. But the great thing about being a public company is that you've got a lot of smaller investors. Nobody has a huge tranche of stock, typically. They do, they have to file for it. But if if they got a little bit of stock, if, if they get upset with you or they don't like the direction of the company, they just sell their stock and move on, generally speaking, right? I mean, we weren't big enough where they were gonna do a hostile takeover or whatever. But uh, when you go to private equity, all of a sudden, you've got people that are heavily invested in the business. And so they're like, some can be, I don't know, and I've had a private, I've had positive experience with private equity. But if you're not careful, you can get private equity people that get really nervous at every little thing that happens. And because they're not a strategic partner that understands your industry, they don't understand a lot of things about your business. And they probably have a portfolio of companies where they forget what goes with what company and you feel like you're re-educating them every quarter. But I remember the pitch to me when uh, private equity came knocking and saying, we want to take the company private. We think it'd be good for you. They said, won't have to do the quarterly reporting. You know, all the quarterly reporting that you have to do as a public company is onerous and your time would better be spent running the company. And they were right. My reporting went from quarterly to weekly. We had, you know, a weekly call. And a, a lot of times, especially during the recession, you know, something would happen and they would just hair on fire. And, you know, it was it was challenging. And a lot of times they would think if they could get something to work on a spreadsheet, they didn't understand why you just couldn't make it work, you know, in the real world. But those are two different things. Yeah. And, and there's also, you know, 
private equity is coming in. Generally, earlier stage, you have the VCs coming in, and then private equity is a little bit later. They generally buy cash flow positive, you know, EBITDA positive companies. But there's an expectation of what the return's going to be, right? So it's not even just that they've got money on the line. If they're not hitting their expectations for how big of a return they thought it should be, then this is an utter failure. And I've seen experiences. I, I, you know, I've been part of this. I've been invested in companies that have had this going on. I've had private equity buyout friends and where they've stayed on in an earnout capacity. And what ends up happening is even though there's an opportunity to exit for a profit, like a good, healthy profit, if it's lower than the expectation of where they wanted to be, it's often like a, a non-starter, even though everyone else would say, this is the biggest win in the world. But they're like, no, we have to get 20% or we have to get 30% or we have to wh- whatever it is. Or it, it is a fascinating world. Well, and what I learned in that world too is that the guys that are the, the investors in private equity, the, the principals that are running those companies, they have to account to their investors And they're oftentimes on the hot seat and under a lot of pressure themselves. And that just kind of cascades down into the business. So I wouldn't avoid private equity, but I would go in with my eyes wide open and make sure that I understood it and get a lot of counsel. Now, because of your experience here being on the the public side, and I forgot actually that you went back to the private side, uh, which is great. And then you went and you started your own company. And and I'm curious, please tell us here in a moment that transition from staying in the privatized version uh, and then splitting off and starting full focus. But I've got to imagine that there are some important lessons that you learned in governance in how your company is now governed compared to, you know, what that looked like uh, through that whole privatization. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that we had to do, like when I was at Thomas Nelson, we had like, I don't know, 75 or 80 people in our accounting department, just the accounting department. And so we had to make all the conversion to be Sarbanes-Oxley compliant, you know, after Enron and all that kind of stuff. And so we had squeaky clean financials. And uh, I think the thing that I, I learned in the corporate world is that, and I mean, this is something we all know, but you can't improve what you don't measure. And so I think that most entrepreneurs that are starting business don't get their heads in the numbers on a regular enough basis that they can make meaningful change to the business. A side note, and it's, and it's kind of an analogy for this, but I, I recently bought a continuous glucose monitor that I wear 24-7. And I did that because I know that my blood sugar is everything in terms of my metabolism and everything else, health-related, inflammation, all that kind of stuff. Well... You know, when, you, when I look at that glucose monitor, I can see immediately if I ate something that spikes my blood sugar and it forces me to correct. Well, if you have good financial reporting, just knowing what the facts are will force you to make the right decisions. So one of the things I did before I actually became the CEO, I was a divisional manager at Thomas Nelson and kind of even in that public company, you know, we weren't having divisional meetings, financial review meetings on a regular basis. It wasn't required of us, but I started having one Uh, every month for all my employees. And so I would get my head in the numbers. I would block out a morning to just pour over the financials. And I wrote a variance report for myself every month where I tried to account for the significant variances in both revenue and expenses. And then I would go to the team, all my employees, and I would explain exactly what transpired the last month and give them a chance to ask questions. I really treated them like owners. 
And by the way, when I, when I took over that division, we had 14 divisions at Thomas Nelson. It was the worst performing division in the company. It hadn't grown in years. It had uh, terrible margins and had lost money the year before I, I took over. So the CEO asked me how long it's going to take to turn that division around. I had no idea, Justin. I just, I picked a number out of the year and I said three years. And he That's said, kind of what I was pill battles. So I, the first thing I did was I went off, I got my head in the numbers, but then I came up with a series of bullets that now I call a vision script. I wrote an entire book on this called The Vision Driven Leader. But I came back with just this 10-point vision of where I thought we could be in three years. I shared it with the team. I shared it exactly where we were with the financial results. And they were shocked. But they rolled up their sleeves. They got to work. And we turned that division around in 18 months. In fact, we went from number 14 to be number one in 18 months. We were the number one in revenue growth of the 14 divisions. And we were the most profitable division in the, in the company. And it stayed that way for 10 years. So... You know, I think, again, investing and paying attention to the metrics is so critically important. You've got to have KPIs. You've got to have a dashboard. You've got to have financial metrics. Make time to, to get your head around those. Yeah, we always used to say what you can measure, you can grow, right? When you're aware of it, you can grow it. You can optimize it. You can maximize it. And so I, I love that. I, I hope more people get into the metrics-driven analytics of running a business because that's how you can gamify it. That's how you can cut out just, I mean, that's that's a hack. A lot of people are like trying to eke out revenue wherever you can get it. And I think that's great too. Like sometimes the answer is drive revenue. You want to solve your problems? Just get more revenue. And sometimes that is true. Other times it's figuring out Pareto's principle of that 80-20. Like what's the 80% of results that comes from 20% of the activity. Let's measure and figure out what those metrics are that we need to move and let's invest time and energy and resources into those things. Well, another practical example, one of the things I did in that division, and this is, was counterintuitive to me, but we were publishing about 120 books a year, which is a lot. And uh, the whole company was publishing hundreds of books a year, but our division was publishing 120 so I did sort of the Pareto analysis and I said, you know, as you would expect, 20% of these books are driving 80% of the results. So you know, but there's some, there's some markers, you know, there's some clues. So we cut the list from 120 down to 48. Now, what that allowed us to do is we didn't need as much staff. The staff that did remain, they had a, a more manageable workload, which uh, allowed them to focus on quality. And so by cutting the list by that much, the list of books or the portfolio by that much, it actually allows to achieve more by doing less. In the Great Recession, we had a similar situation. We were calling on 6,000 retail bookstores. And we discovered to our shock that 120 of them were driving 90% of the profit. So we were able to let go a lot of the sales staff we were able to, we got out of a trade show where we were out there with all of our competitors and all the noise and spending a half a million dollars a year trying to get attention. We said, forget that. Let's bring these 120 people into Nashville. We'll pay their way, treat them to an amazing experience for 24 hours, have our best authors speak to them and have their undivided attention. So a fraction of what it was costing us to go to that trade show. That's fantastic. And that's the power of knowing the numbers. That's, that's great. Uh, having a dashboard, we're at a glance. You can know what's going on with, 
you know, pretty regular updates, like you know, daily, weekly, monthly, and, and month over month, day over day, year over year. I love that. Now, you recently had a bit of a life scare. And I've got to imagine that has opened your eyes to maybe some new realities. You're a very fit guy. You take your, your fitness, your health very seriously. And sometimes uh, what is out of your control can happen and it can be, you could be doing all the right things and in total great shape and great weight, going to the gym, great, you know, cardiovascular ability, great weight training ability, like all the things. And then genetically, there's something going on that can have major impact on your whole world. And I'd love to talk a little bit about that and, and takeaways from it. Well, one of the things that, that we believe at Full Focus and one of the things that we really promote, it's core to who we are, is something we call the double win, winning at work and succeeding at life. And there's this symbiotic relationship between your professional life and your personal life. So that if you're stressed at work, that's going to bleed into your health. It's going to bleed into your most important relationships and vice versa. If you've got trouble at home or you've got a health problem, that can impact your business as well. So it's important to pay attention to both. And as you mentioned, I've really paid a lot of attention to my health over the last couple of decades. I've run multiple half marathons. I've had a personal trainer. I've had a nutritionist, kind of a health team. I've had amazing, amazing doctors. But I kept having this high calcium score. And it, it didn't really affect me other than knowing that number scared me to death. And it was so high that, like, if you have a calcium score that's greater than 500, and by the way, everybody ought to be getting a calcium score every year. But if it's greater than 500, you're in the danger zone, okay? So mine got up to almost 3,000, which is not good. But it also depends on what kind of plaque is building up. We couldn't figure out why is this continuing to go up? I thought I got a doctor that did figure it out, but it was a little bit too late. So in July, I'm hiking in the Andes in Peru. So we're at eight, nine, 10,000 feet. I mean, it was very demanding spiritually. And I found myself really out of breath a lot, which kind of surprised me. And in fact, I had two of my daughters on my trip, on the trip and my wife. And my daughters said to my wife, they said, why is dad struggling so much? We thought he was in better shape than this. Oh, I didn't think anything about it. I just had COVID, by the way. And so I thought, you know, it's probably a COVID leftover, no big deal. So I got home, didn't think anything about it. But then in September, I was out for my morning walk. I usually walk two, two miles in the morning. And about a quarter of a mile from my house, I started getting really bad vertigo, like just super dizzy. I'm thinking, what is going on here? And then I got nauseous and then I threw up. And so I called my wife and I said, honey, I think you've got to come pick me up. I don't think I can walk home. She said, it's only a quarter of a mile. I said, I know, but I don't think I can. I just threw up, whatever. Well, then I threw up again. She came and got me. Long story short, we called an ambulance. I went in. They ended up doing an angiogram on me and found out that I had what they thought were three blockages. It ended up being four, but one of them was 90% blocked. And so I had to go in for bypass surgery, which by the way, when they rolled me in for the angiogram, so like that's the full-blown medical procedure. It's in the big operating room, the whole thing. They rolled me in there. And one of the doctors put his hand on my shoulder. And he said, hey, don't worry. He said, you're in great shape. We never see anybody in here that looks like you. Everything will be fine. Worst case scenario, we have to put a stint in and we'll do that when we do the angiogram, but you should be good to go. We come out of it. I come out of it. Wake up and I said, so how am I doing? And they said, uh, yeah, you're going to need bypass surgery. And so they told me the thing. But Justin, I had amazing peace. And I thought, 
it's going to be okay. You know, and I think sometimes we don't factor, we, we think about these things and they're big and scary, but we, we can't envision the grace that we're given in the moment. And so in that moment, I just felt so protected and so good. And I had an amazing cardiac surgeon. He came in, he was very reassuring. So the next morning, I went in for cardiac surgery. So I went on medical leave all fall of 2022. So I didn't come back to work really until after the first of the year, a little bit of time in December, but after the first of the year, had a tremendous time to read and journal and reflect. But here's what that meant. Here's what was really good. This is a lesson for everybody to take away. You never know when life's going to hit you. You never know when something is going to happen and you've got to set yourself up for it while you can. I was talking to a bunch of coaching clients today and I said, you know, the time to get a line of credit is when you don't need it. So you got to set it up when you don't need it. The time to work out, the time to eat better, the time to do all that is when you don't need it. And fortunately, I had done that. But here's the thing I did from a business perspective. And I'm 67 years old. So about five years ago, my daughter, Megan, had been working in the business for quite a while. She's super smart. She's a great leader. And I said to her, I think I want you to succeed me. And she said, well, okay, great. So we announced to the team five years ago that this was the succession plan. And it was going to be a two-year plan. Actually, we said three years. It ended up being two. But I said, I said, you know, here's what's going to happen over the next couple of years. And this is a lesson, too. Whenever you're telling people about big change in your company, start with what's not going to change. Because if you start with what's changing, and as entrepreneurs, we kind of love change, but not everybody loves change. And it makes them feel very uncertain and very unstable. So we said, here's what's not going to change. Our vision, our mission, our corporate culture. You know, none of that's going to change. Our values, none of that's going to change. But here's what's going to change. Megan's going to be the CEO in three years. And here's how it's going to be stepped out. So we had made that transition a year and a half ago. I felt like Megan was ready. And so I said, let's just bump this up by a year. There's no reason to wait. And so because of that, because she had been running the company for more than, I guess, 18 months herself, when I took medical leave, the company didn't miss a beat. You know, I could be out of the business and the business kept functioning without me. In fact, if I'm honest, it did better without me. So there's a lesson I think for all entrepreneurs is to think about succession and to do it well so that you set your successor up for success and then get out of the way. You know, don't gunk up the leadership or the, and, and confuse people by who's in charge. Yeah, that's a great way to set it up. And, and we do need to start thinking about it early because companies that are built to scale the best and are built to have the best value are the ones that are system-oriented and succession-oriented, right? So it's like it's it's built no matter who owns it, no matter who's running it, that the, the business can scale because the processes are already laid out. And you might have to revamp them. You might have to redraw them at certain levels of scale, right? Because there'll be different bottlenecks. But at the same point in time, most people don't think about succession planning. And I think you want to start that earlier than later. Now, I don't know if you have watched the hit HBO series Succession. A few episodes only. So I've got to imagine you don't run your uh, your business and family the way Logan Roy does. I'm curious, how have you navigated the complications? Because it seems like you've done this well of having family and business collide, because it can be really challenging. 
It can be. And Meg and I get invited on a lot of shows to explain how we made succession work. We just did a podcast last week with Kerry Newhoff, and he was asking us, how in the world does this work? Because we don't see it very often. Well, first of all, start with having a really bad experience. So when I became the CEO of Thomas Nelson Publishers, my predecessor had been the CEO for 50 years. He was in his late 70s, and he was my biggest fan. He was my mentor. He nominated me to the board for my role as CEO. The board voted unanimously, and he was totally on board. Handed the gavel to me at the, you know, the shareholders meeting, the whole thing. The next day, he walks into my CFO's office, and he says to the CFO, he says, Joe, if I'm not the CEO, who am I? Well, he had a crisis of identity, and he hadn't given any thought to what he was going to do after he became the CEO. He didn't have a life other than being the CEO, so he panicked. So from that day forward, he spent the next two years trying to unseat me. So he was calling other CEOs in my industry. And again, we're a publicly held company. This was probably borderline illegal, but he was not an agent of the board. He was just, you know, the Lone Ranger, and he was out there trying to hire other people to replace me. And so I'm trying to fend him off. He was in the office every day. He was starting rumors, gossip, all this stuff. So I've seen it done really badly. And in fact, the reason that we sold the business, and so, you know, I would have done a secondary offering if I had to do it over again, but he didn't want that. You know, he wanted everybody to benefit, and then he would be out of the business. So we did that and got him out of the business. So I've seen it done poorly. That was hugely helpful. I've learned more from bad leaders than good leaders. Side note. So I, I thought, you know, I, I want this to go well. But in a family succession, it's only going to be as good as your relationship is healthy. So if you don't have a healthy relationship, being in business together is not going to help the relationship and it's not going to help the business. I've been married to my wife, Gail, for almost 45 years. We have five grown daughters. All of them live within 20 minutes of us. Three of them, the three with the grandkids, live within five minutes. And all 10 of my grandkids live within five minutes. So we have a very, very healthy family. And Megan and I are both, I think, we, we share this. She's a little better at it than I am. But we have empathy on the one hand, but we're both very direct and we're committed to not let the sun set on our anger. So we confront things very early on, so we're not collecting them and, and cashing in later. But we can talk about anything. We have just a very healthy relationship. And so before you think about this, if you're listening to this and you're thinking about, man, I would love to hand off my business to my son or to my daughter then the most important thing you can do before that point is invest in the relationship. Make sure that the communication is wide open, that you have a way, a healthy way of resolving conflict so that you don't engage in passive aggressive behavior or other kinds of unhealthy behaviors. And if you need to, pull in a coach or pull in a counselor or somebody that can help that relationship be good. So Megan and I totally have each other's backs and there's meetings I don't even go to because I don't want anybody to wonder who's in charge. I want her to be the skipper. And I, I think of myself as working for her. That is so good. There is so much gold in what you just said there. And I know that there are people that are listening to this and watching this that do work with their family and do desire to have their children take over the family business, you know, or that they desire for their children to be able to allow their kids to, to do the same. So Powerful stuff. Now, you have a new book coming out, and I'd love for you to be able to talk about that uh, a little bit as we wrap things up here. Uh, and then I'd love to make sure people know where to reach you and, and find out more about what's going on in your world. 
Yeah, absolutely. So we actually have a new book that came out in January. Megan and I wrote it together. We've written two books now together. And uh, this is the second one. It's called Mind Your Mindset, The Science That Shows Success Starts With Your Thinking. So we did a deep dive on neuroscience, and we wanted to understand how the brain works. And so what we have in the book is a three-part process. And we said this is book is really the prequel to everything else, because my professional opinion is that mindset is about 85% of everything. You know, if you've got the right mindset, you can be resilient. If you've got the right mindset, you will find the solution to the problem. If you've got the right mindset, you'll just make it work. But if you don't, even your successes can sabotage you. So what we started noticing, and this was a couple decades ago, one of the things I started noticing is that there is a difference between facts and then the story or the meaning that you assign to the facts. So for example, with my heart attack story. You know, I was sitting in cardiac rehab, and this is pretty interesting. I'm sitting in cardiac rehab, and after the exercise part of the program, we had an instruction part where one of the nurses came and talked about some aspect of healthy lifestyle and, you know, rebounding from your heart attack. So the first thing she asked us is, what does your heart attack mean to you? So name event in common, but what were the stories? The guy right across the table from me teared up, and he was the first to go, and he said, well, here's what it means for me. I've peaked uh, my life's basically over, at least as I knew it, and it's going to be a downhill slide until I die. I thought, wow. So I had the good fortunes in the world uh, when it comes to precision medicine. He calls me uh, when I was in the ICU, and he said, look, I know it's going to be easy for you to dwell in the past and ask yourself, what could you have done differently? How could you have a thing is? You basically just rebooted your life. You've got more blood flow, flow to your brain and your body than you've had in the last two decades. And he said, I can't imagine what you're going to create now. If you, if you look at what you've created without that, and now you've got all this these assets, this is going to be amazing. So he set my mindset that this was not a negative thing, but this was a gift. Now, I, I didn't want to hear that right away, but it all came from mindset. But step one comes when you're, when you're thinking about your mindset, and this is step one in the book, is you've got to identify the story, separate the facts from the story, because most of us think the story is true, but the story is not true or false. It's the facts that are true, and then the story is going to approximate some degree of truthfulness. So get this, up to 20% of our memories are false on average. 70% of our memories are distorted in some significant aspect. So we need to be constantly self-aware of our thinking. And then we get into the part, I, we don't have time to go into this, but in, to interrogate that story and ask, well, is that really true? Or is, an, is there another way or another meaning that I can assign to this that would be more enabling, more powerful? And then finally, to imagine a bigger, better story. How could we take those same set of facts and use those to create a bigger, more powerful story that will really serve what it is we're trying to create in the world? So that's the book in two minutes. Oh, I love it. Where can our audience learn more about you and, and get plugged into what you're up to? Well, first of all, go to fullfocus.co, C-O, fullfocus.co. That has links to our podcast, to our coaching program, to our Full Focus Planner and everything else. If you're interested in the book, Mind Your Mindset, go to mindyourmindsetbook.com, buy the book, and then they come back to that website and turn in the receipt. Then they're going to get an audiobook version of the book. They're going to get a discount on something we're not getting the results you want. You can use this tool to work through your thinking. And after a while, you'll develop the facility to do it on the fly without the tool. 
but we give you a 50% discount on the tool. And then there's something else that we give you too. Oh, a reading guide for the book too, so that you can really go deep in it and make sure that you apply it. I love it. Well, I hope that people dive in and what you're talking about, this mindset shift is everything. I, I would say that the vast majority of the success that I've had, you know, in the way that uh, I guess I, I measure success is because of just a small little shift in mindset, not a huge one, just a small one. And so I think this is powerful. And I, I hope more people read your work. Once they get into one of your books, I think they're going to start getting into a whole bunch more. I've got I don't think I have all 15 of your books, but I think I've got at least half of them on my bookshelf behind me. So yeah, thanks for what you do. And I love ending every episode with one question that I ask my audience, and that's this. What's one step that you can take today to move towards financial freedom and move towards a life that you truly desire, one that's on your terms, a life not by default, but by design? So think about that. Take some form of action and uh, we'll catch you next week. Michael, thank you so much for joining us and uh, tune in for our next episode. Thanks for listening to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review over on iTunes. Not only do I read every single one, but it also helps me understand what content matters the most to our audience. And if you can think of one or two people who would benefit from this episode, would you mind sharing it with them right now? Who knows? Maybe they'll buy you something nice when they make their first million. If you would like access to today's show notes, including links to all resources mentioned, visit www.lifestyleinvestor.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week for another episode of The Lifestyle Investor. This podcast is being made available exclusively to financially sophisticated, high net worth individuals capable of evaluating the merits and risks of investments. The material presented in this podcast is not intended to be investment advice or to recommend the purchase or sale of any security, nor is it intended to be legal, accounting, or tax advice. You should consult with your legal, tax, or financial advisor in connection with any material discussed on this podcast. Past performance is not indicative nor a guarantee of future results. Certain materials discussed on this podcast may have been prepared by third parties, which have been obtained from sources that we believe to be accurate and current. However, we make no representation or warranty as to the accuracy, completeness, or currency of such materials.